My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Thomas Malchow from trainfully.com, and you're listening to the Train Fully Golf Performance Podcast, the show that dives deep into performance training, sports science, and sports medicine for golfers. Now, if you like our podcast and you find it's helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, in this episode, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Jack Wells joining us. Jack is the lead sports scientist for the Professional Golfers Association and a scientific advisor for the European Tour Performance Institute. He's also a strength and conditioning coach for England Golf and one of the co-founders of the Golf Performance Network, which I'm a member of. And guys, if you work in strength and conditioning or you work in sports medicine and you work with golfers, you got to join the Golf Performance Network. Many of the leading researchers and practitioners in golf strength and conditioning, sports science, and sports medicine are in the Golf Performance Network. It's by far the best resource we have for golf performance research and education for strength coaches, sports scientists, and clinicians. And they offer a course called Physical Preparation for Golf that actually teaches you the advanced assessment and program design principles they use on the DP World Tour, right? So if you take that course, you know you can confidently maximize the impact you have on your athletes. And that's actually what Jack's here to talk about today. Physical profiling for golf. It's what he did his PhD in. And in fact, the assessments they now use on the DP World Tour are a result of Jack's research. And if you're interested, I've provided a link to his thesis in the show notes. It's very informative. And again, if you work in strength and conditioning or sports medicine and you work with golfers, I highly recommend you give it a read. Now, if you're a golfer and you want to take your game to the next level or, or maybe you've been dealing with injuries that have been holding you back, you can apply to work with me one-on-one -on -one by sending me a message through my website, trainfully.com. You can also send me a direct message on Instagram. My handle is at Elastic Golfer. But maybe that's not in your budget. Don't worry. Head over to trainfully.com and join my inner circle. For $14 a month, you get access to all of my acclaimed performance rehab and training programs. There's eight training phases, eight periodized programs, blood flow restriction training, four neuromuscular control phases for the core, the hips, and the shoulders. There's a pre-round warm-up and a post-round cool-down. There's also a growing database of rehab protocols for common injuries. And all of these programs are 100% evidence-based, and they get updated as the science evolves, right? So you know 100% if you're a member of Minor Circle or you work with me one-on-one, -on -one, that your programming is 100% evidence-based, okay? And all of the programs come with follow-along videos. So you don't have to do any thinking. All you have to do is hit play and follow along. And if you don't wanna follow the video, that's fine. You can just print out the workout instead, okay? So again, head over to trainfully.com and sign up today. Now guys, enjoy the episode. 
and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right. So joining us today is the lead sports scientist for the Professional Golfers Association. He's also one of the co-hosts of the Golf Performance Network. And if you haven't joined the Golf Performance Network yet, I highly recommend you do. And we're going to talk about that here a little bit as well. Dr. Jack Wells. Jack, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing? Hey, Thomas. Yeah, I'm doing really good. Thanks. Um, thanks ever so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm really excited about this. I, I've, I've read your thesis, as you know, and I want to talk to you about player profiling and your philosophy around assessing golfers. Before we get to that, though, can you please introduce yourself and tell us why you got into golf performance? Um, yeah, so um, I've been in and around sort of the this sort of golf performance industry for um, 11 years now. And um, so, so I started at the, um, at the Professional Golfers Association, just sort of working as a, um, as a sports scientist with a, a real interest in biomechanics and strength and conditioning. And I have always really enjoyed the combination of research and, and practice. And certainly my role at the PGA really facilitates that because uh, I'm, I'm working to educate um, the future golf coaches. So any sort of research I read, I try and filter it in a way and think, okay, how can this be usable? So I've got like a, a real interest in anything in and around um, biomechanics, SNC, but other broad aspects of sports science and how it can impact on impact golf. And I think from this, uh, like my interest in biomechanics and SNC, I, I was looking at a lot of the the research, and I just thought there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that we can look at, and and it's really not been not been assessed. And I I had had a great opportunity because I worked with a lot of very good golfers, um, I had access to some good equipment as well, and I thought I can. I can really make some moves in this and 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 start to try and like maybe um develop a bit of a better understanding as, as to sort of golf performance and um you know physical prep for golf and uh, some of the links between key performance indicators and, and club head speed. So I was uh, I started looking at golfers on force plates and um getting some decent information about that and then it sort of snowballed from that where um I met some guys at the the tour and and um and they were really interested in my work and it, and it snowballed from there. So sort of a, alongside my, my work at the PGA, um, I do a lot of work with, with England golf. So I'm an SNC coach for there. So for them, so I, I try and implement a lot of this, this information to the golfers that I work with there. Um, I also work with the, the, the European tour a little bit. So I'm a scientific advisor for them and I try and help them and, and work with, Work with some of the colleagues there, so people you've had before, like um, Chris Bishop, Dan Coglin, Cybrelli, um, work really closely together on a lot of research. And um, yeah, like that's that's probably a bit of a whistle stop tour on, on my background and, and where it's where it's gone within golf performance. And I think probably the final thing to say is getting to the point where um, Dan, Simon, and I felt we wanted to try and educate more and more people on golf performance because we had a lot of people coming up to us and saying how do I learn more about this? And that's kind of where the concept of the golf performance network was, was born. Yeah. And, and the listeners know that I highly recommend the golf performance network. I've gone through the physical um, the course that you guys have on in the network. I found it extremely informative and um, you know, you actually have your PhD in physical profiling for golf and, and I've read your thesis. It's extremely informative 
and I've, I'm going to, I put a note or a link to it in the show notes. So for those of you listening, if you work in sports medicine, if you work in strength and conditioning and work with golfers, I highly recommend you give it a read. The findings of your thesis, Jack, have been, um, had a pretty big impact on the golfing industry. And because of your research, the DP world tour now uses a certain type of assessment or, or profiling when they, when they test their players. Tell us about your philosophy when it comes to assessing players. Yes, I I think this is probably a bit of a a slow build-up throughout my PhD. And I would say, if I was to pin my philosophy down, I would say that it's just super important to have a really strong rationale for anything you do. Okay, so, like, do you understand, like, why you are assessing something let's say from a physical prep point of view or if you are sorry physical profiling point of view or if you're trying to let's say um um, implement certain interventions do you have a good understanding of um what you're trying to achieve and what exercises you might might use for that intervention so like for me it's about trying to form a really strong rationale um now a really bad rationale would be from let's say from a research perspective would be this has never been looked at before now one of the reasons something that might not have been looked at is because actually it's just a a really rubbish idea um so no one's looked at it because don't bother it's pretty pretty pointless um another another really bad rationale which can occur a lot within golf and other sports is um i do this or i use this method because um we've just I've just done it for so long or um I, a really good coach told me to do this and and that's kind of exactly this is exactly why I do it because we've just done it for so long and and that's a that's a really bad rationale for me because you you don't you're just sort of relying on someone else's thoughts you don't really understand it yourself so I'll give you a perfect example within golf so um for a long while um a lot of golf coaches thought that the initial start direction for the golf ball um, was pretty much directly determined by where this, the, the club path or the swing path was moving, as opposed to where the club face was pointing. Mm-hmm. And you got a lot of a lot of golf coaches are saying, "Oh yeah, you know, um, yeah, if you want to understand where the ball is going or the initial start direction of the ball, it's you know due to where the sort of player is swinging." Uh, and then uh, the search of the perfect swing was written by Alistair Cochran and John Stobbs. And they said that not only was that not the case, it was completely the other way around. So actually, initial start direction is due to where the face is pointing and not where the, the path of the club head is traveling. And for years, golf coaches like, no, it's not the case. I've, you know, I've worked, I've seen a million golfers swing like this. And then ultimately, they got to the point. It's just like, well, actually, this <laughs> the evidence is overwhelming. We can't disagree with it. So that's an example of just doing something because someone else has done it in the past or, you know, I just think so. It's sort of conforms with your bias and I think another poor rationale is just because you've been told something by an organization or association or institute or if you see good golfers do something now we can often be told information by people because ultimately they stand to gain there's a huge bias there actually like our information is is really good and we want to give you snippets of that so actually you 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 pay for that or you you know you, you subscribe to x y and z um and ultimately they will try and make you form beliefs about something because um they stand to gain 
Now, what's important, that's okay. But for me, you have to understand and you have to ask really good questions when you get that material. Okay, why does that happen? You know, what evidence have you got to support that? Um, can you, you know, prove this? Um, and actually, sometimes like what I tend to find is when you ask really good questions, that's when all this just really falls down. Um, so that's kind of a bit of my my philosophy. And it's really just about trying to form a really strong rationale for why you do something. You guys, when when you do your profiling on the DP World Tour, your your screening is is different. It's not even really screening, is it? You guys are testing for um, counter movement, jump, positive impulse, and isometric mid thigh pull peak force. And I want you to explain what what all of that means. And maybe we'll begin with the vertical jumps. What's the relationship between club head speed and the golfer's ability to produce force during vertical jumps? Yeah, so um, great question because it kind of <laughs> links straight straight back to my rationale. So what I what I'll do is I'll I'll reverse engineer it as to ultimately get to the point of why I look at why we look at vertical ground reaction forces. So ultimately, what's really important for golfers there's a, there's a number of important things, but um, there's been a big sort of emphasis on trying to hit the ball further, and that's based on quite a lot of evidence showing that golfers that hit the ball further, they they they're more likely to earn money. So we know that drive distance, carry distance is a key performance indicator for golf. So we work backwards from, from that. Okay, what's a, what's a really important determinant of hitting the ball far? The biggest predictor we know from the evidence is swinging the club faster. Now, actually, people will say it's um, golf's a power sport or it's a speed sport. Actually, that's both of those are incorrect. It's actually a momentum sport. Okay, because let's say if you just had a golf shaft and you, you could swing it really, really fast, but you, you might hit the ball with no, no sort of mass. So actually golf is a momentum sport. Um, and our, our big win is to try and swing a faster club, uh, try and swing a, a heavier club head slightly faster. That's how we're going to generate more momentum into the ball. That's how the ball is going to um, leave the club at a greater speed and it's going to travel further. Um, so I'll come back to the momentum aspect in a second, but, Ultimately, we need to produce forces um, to move the golfer. And the only thing that we can use to move the golfer uh, or the only thing we've got contact with is the ground. So therefore, ground reaction forces become super important because if we're in space, we're really going to struggle to, to, to move. Okay. Um, yeah. So when we look at ground reaction forces, they work in three different directions. They work sort of left to right, so medial to laterally. They work anterior to posterior, so forwards, backwards, and they work vertically. Now, uh, the largest forces are in the vertical uh, vertical direction. Um, but why that is important is because it can um, cause a golfer to sort of rotate in the, uh, in the frontal plane. So the frontal plane, imagine you're looking at the golfer face on um, and they're sort of swinging clockwise and anti-clockwise. So if I'm looking at a golfer, a right-handed golfer face on, um, their club will be swinging um, anti-clockwise. Now, if I produce more force in my lead foot, which typically a lot of golfers do in the downswing, um, that force in their lead foot can help them or increase their acceleration in that frontal plane. Now, frontal plane talk is strongly linked to club head speed. So then we're looking at, okay, right, um, vertigo reaction forces are really important here. So what we've done there is we've gone um, distance, um, club speed, stroke momentum, frontal plane torque, ground reaction, vertical ground reaction forces. 
Now, when we have a look at our ground reaction forces, um, we can uh, assess what's the maximum force we produce. Um, so that's typically termed our peak force. Um, and what's the force we produce over a given period of time, which is our impulse. And why impulse is super important is because impulse directly determines momentum. So if we can generate greater impulse, we will have greater momentum. So that is kind of why impulse is such an important metric, because it relates to that, ultimately, that momentum of impact. And I suppose for those listeners that perhaps don't know what, what impulse is, if you imagine a lorry and a car both traveling at 30 miles an hour, well, the lorry is going to have greater momentum. Now, to generate that greater momentum, they're going to have to have either um, produced more force over a given, let's say, acceleration time, or they're going to have to produce the same force over um, a, a um, slightly longer time. Again, if they slam on the brakes, we know that if both a lorry and a car are traveling at 30 miles an hour, if they slam on the brakes and produce the same force, we know that a lorry takes a lot longer to slow slow down. Okay, so that's that interaction between force and time there. Um, so that's kind of ultimately why why we will look at um, our ration, my rationale as to why we will look at look at vertical ground reaction forces within, um, let's say, a counter movement jump or uh, peak force within an isometric midfly pole. You touched on why you prefer impulse over over power. I think power a lot of people kind of look at power they want to become more powerful it's a pretty popular buzzword could you explain why impulse is a better measurement compared to power yeah i think for those that have um, probably followed me on on like social media they they probably they probably started muting me because i bang on about impulse so much and um, impulse is one of those things where I think a lot of people haven't heard it. Most people think of impulse a bit like an impulse buy where, you know, you're, you're about to queue up to get your shopping and you buy some sweets or chewing gum because um, it's just sitting there. But um, the reason the reason impulse is so, um, so valuable is because it directly comes from Newton's second law of motion, um, F equals MA. Um, and because that's the case, it means it's causative. So what I mean by that is, if I did a vertical jump and I achieved a certain height in that, if I did another vertical jump and produced more impulse in that vertical jump, I will jump higher, okay? And that is absolute, okay? Because it is causative. If I produce more impulse, I'll have greater jump momentum. And because remember, momentum is mass times, mass times by velocity, my mass hasn't changed. So what happens is, the direct change is that my velocity increases. And if I've got greater takeoff velocity, I'll jump higher. So impulse is causative. So that's why I like impulse. And the reason I don't like power, and probably a lot of people don't realize is power isn't causative. Okay, so a lot of people think if you're more powerful, you'll swing the club faster. If you produce more power in a jump, people think you jump higher. Um, you absolutely don't. So I can share some data with you where I've looked at this. So I've got a golfer who uh, generated 1,800 watts in a vertical jump versus a golfer that generated over 2,000 watts in a vertical jump. Now, you would look and think, well, the golfer that has produced um, um, more average power in the vertical jump will jump higher. 
Okay, um, they don't. They actually, it's the golfer that's less powerful in the vertical jump actually jumps higher. Okay, so in these two examples, the golfer that's less powerful jumps 0.32 meters, whereas the golfer that's more powerful jumps 0.25 meters. Um, and people go, oh, okay, but what about mass? Like, what if, was one heavier than the other? Actually, if you divide their power by their mass, you get relative power. And actually, in this scenario, they've got exactly the same relative power, okay? So you might think, well, okay, um, so one of them is more powerful than the other, but they've both got the same relative power. Which one would jump higher? Well, maybe they jump the same height. As I've said already, the golfer that is less powerful jumps higher. And um, it comes back to the fact that power is uh, not causative of jump height. Um, but I think the other problem with power um, is I just think it's hard to, to assess. So if you've got force plates um, and if you're lucky enough to have force plates that tell you the value straight away, then OK, right, you've got it straight away and you might have impulse. But I would still look at impulse because it is causative. Um, but if you haven't, then calculating it manually, well, impulse is just force times by time. So you've got the force and, and it will and the force plates will give you how much, like the, the gaps in between those force. You just multiply those two values together and you get impulse. Whereas power, you have to um, uh, divide it by mass to get acceleration. Then you have to calculate velocity. Then you have to multiply force and velocity and then you've got power. So that becomes very time consuming. But the other method which we talked about is using the my jump app, and people people will use the my jump app to um, uh, measure um, power. Now, to to measure power, what you need to do before that is you need to get the golfer to lie down on the floor, and you have to get them to point their toes, and you measure the distance from their great decanter to the distance their toes pointing. And then you get them stand up and you get them to do a uh, squat to about 90 degree. Um, um, so the hip, the hip, the hip joints um, flexed at 90 degrees and you measure their distance from the greatest cancer to the floor. And what you're trying to do there is you're trying to work out uh, ultimately the distance they'll move from that bottom position in the jump up until toe off, like, or, like the, the position they take off. Um, now, OK, that's taken time to do that. Right. But the other thing as well is you have to make sure that if you do a counter movement jump, that they get to that 90 degree knee position, which practically is not yeah. that easy. And, and if you look at the, the guys that um, validated this app, okay, they did a good job of, of de developing this app to calculate average power. But they even say in the paper, this method is not valid or it's sorry, it's not been validated for the counter movement jump. It's only the squat jump. So if we're using the MyJump app to calculate average power, um, it's a good chance that your your data is going to be is going to be out, and um, it just comes back to, well, three things: um, a, it's not causative; um, b, it takes longer together than impulse. We've already gone through how you ca can calculate that a lot easier, um, and c, um, impulse has got a stronger relationship with with club head speed and and distance metrics anyway. So that's why. Um, for me, don't look at power when you can measure impulse, um, which is much more causative. Yeah, power, you know, it's because it's a product for me, product obviously of force times velocity. Say you have the power is 500 watts. Well, 
was the force 50 and velocity 10 or was force 10 and velocity 50. So um, it doesn't give as much information as I think a lot of people think it does. And, you know, what do you need to work on? If you just have, oh, this golfer or this athlete produced 500 watts, that doesn't really tell me what we need to work on in terms of a gym program. Do they need to get faster or do they need to get stronger? Whereas yeah. impulse is much more definitive. It's more yeah. impulse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's and if you're you know if you're measuring that as well from from something that isn't going to give you the the you know the accurate data, then your judgment is going to be clouded. And as I said earlier, that uh, the or as I, as I've sort of like highlighted that the 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 less reliable something is, the less reliable something is, the, the less confidence you're gonna have in that in that information. So um useful from the physical preparation course that you guys have in the golf performance network is the the fact that we know that if the golfer can increase their counter movement jump impulse by 45 newton seconds if this is an elite golfer that should increase their club head speed by about three or four miles per hour and that could lead to an extra you know 10 yards 12 yards off the tee so measuring and monitoring jump impulse can have a really big impact for elite golfers, but you know, most people don't have access to force plates. So it can be challenging to measure impulse for those who don't have access to force plates. Can you explain how they can measure jump impulse? Yeah. So, so a lot of the, a lot of my initial work looked at something called positive impulse, which we typically will, will use and get from force plates. Um, but I sort of realized that that's, that's all very well and good, but a lot of people don't have, don't have force plates. So, um, I was sort of playing around with data and thinking, how can we, um, how can we try and get this or how can we use impulse in a, in a really practically applicable way? So again, I sort of reverse, reverse engineered, reverse engineered that. So a lot of people have got access to jump mats um, or the, the my jump app, which is um, super popular because it's just it's just so easy to, you know, it's on your phone and you can transport it around. So um, basically what you need to do is you, you get their jump height from a, from a counter movement jump. So you would film it on the my jump app or you'd get that you get that jump height from a, a contact map. Um, so you've got, let's say, a set value there. Um, and then what you would do is um, initially you need to do uh, two times by gravity. So gravity is like 9.81. So you've got two, two times by 9.81. And then what you do is that you multiply that by the jump height in meters. So if you jump 35 centimeters, that's 0.35 meters. So you've got a value there. So it's two times by nine, two times by gravity. So two times 9.81, multiply that by jump height. And then what you do is you square root that. And that gives you velocity. So that's the hard bit. Now you can set that up in Excel and, and it does it for you like pretty simply. So you've, you've got velocity there. And we've talked about momentum already being mass times by velocity. So once you've got their jump height um, and you've worked out that takeoff velocity, all you do is you multiply that by their mass in kilograms. And then what that actually gives you, it gives if it gives you it gives you their jump momentum, which is directly proportional to their impulse flow. So invariably, it gives you their impulse, and that's a really simple way of measuring um, 
measuring their net impulse, um, which also is a really strong predictor and really strongly related it, related to club head speed. Um, so that's actually taking the my jump pattern. The my jump pattern is, is is normally used to calculate power, but what we've done is <laughs> took a little bit of the my jump app, ignored power, and used it to calculate a variable which I think is um, a lot more valuable, a, a lot better, a lot easier to get. Yeah, and, and again, I want to plug the physical preparation course that that you guys have in the Golf Performance Network because it just makes uh, my job so much easier to have first of all that equation to be able to monitor my athletes because now i have um, a metric that i can track that i can monitor the players understand the value of it we have a spreadsheet we can all look at it and, and track the performance over time and they know that if they increase their impulse that their performance will most likely improve as a result and it also allows us to track and make sure that the training that the golfer is doing is actually having an impact on their performance. And so for the people listening, I can't, like, I can't recommend that course highly enough. I, I really strongly recommend that if you work with golfers, you join the golf performance network and you take the physical preparation course, because it really will make your life a lot easier. It will give you more confidence um, to work with golfers and to track and monitor their, their progress. I think you probably yeah. held our record for the uh, fastest completion on that. Time. <laughs> it's uh, supposed to be a six week course and you did it, did it a lot quicker. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it took six days, but I, I went on a, uh, on just like a, uh, like, you know, how people, they watch Netflix and they just binge watch Netflix. Yeah. I just couldn't stop going through the material. I, it was extremely informative, really enjoyable yeah. too. The videos that you guys have. Are, yeah. are well, just I mean, I, I can only take a third of the credit for that because I'm I'm really fortunate to work with with Dan and Sai. You know, how I, I always look at and think uh, I'm incredibly fortunate to work with two super super smart smart individuals there. When you know we're we're quite fortunate in that sort of I, I really rate Dan and Sai as as S coaches, and obviously they work with the DP World Tour, and you know I work as an S and C coach as well, but we've kind of got a few things covered in that like I tend to lead on everything like biomech wise so biomechanics and um and Dan's got like a really strong physio background as well and 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 also Sai you know Sai's got really uh Sai's super smart with the you know with the skill act physio and biomech so it's we're sort of we're quite fortunate and we've got a few things um covered there but yeah I can't really take um much of the credit because those two are, are super super smart all great communicators as well. And um, uh, my original, the athletes that I worked with originally were hockey players. Mm -hmm. And um, when I, and soccer, and and when I transitioned into golf, the, there wasn't the information out there that you guys now are providing. And it's, it's, it's reassuring for somebody coming from other sports to see how, um, familiar the methods and the approach into SNC has become in golf now because originally it was it was lacking. I think you guys have really done a great job um, providing the I think really good information that to help practitioners and golfers improve. What about the relationship with with strength? What's the relationship between club head speed and, and maximum strength? Yeah, so. Um... I think the first thing to say is that um, 
it depends on what we're looking at with maximum strength because we we can you know, strength is very specific um so we can look at strength in like repetition maximum tests um and the the results i think um are a little bit mixed uh, or they, they, well it does significantly it does significantly rate so for relate so for instance we've got some john hellstrom's work that showed like um relation significant relationship um and it was it's also quite strong with some other work like parchment and mcbride but um that's like quite good from a practical standpoint in terms of doing a repetition maximum test and yeah it, it does relate and if we think about our ability to produce force again we know that our ability to produce force from a vertical vertical standpoint um is important for for generating frontal plane torque club head speed so on and so forth so it's sort of invariably it makes sense that we we might want to use um a, a sort of vertically orientated task to to assess them such as a, a back squat or a deadlift or front squat but part of the problem with that is um when you work with tour players and a bit like what the dp world tour have is they've got their sort of truck that will drive around to different events or they'll sort of set up a pop-up gym um if we want to assess um maximum strength then it becomes practically or well it just becomes completely impractical to use a repetition maximum test like that because um even though they are very safe they're probably a little bit scary for a golfer, particularly if, if someone's not that experienced. So if they're not that experienced, you probably want to get them lifting initially. So you've, you've not really got a bench, not really got like a baseline or benchmark there for that player. Um, they are quite tiring. Um, so if you're doing them at the start of a tournament, that player could quite easily become fatigued. And the last thing you want is a golfer going away again. great, I know how much I can lift but I'm absolutely exhausted. Like I can't swing a club. I, I just feel like I can't hit those positions I want to hit. Um, and also they're quite time consuming as well. Um, so it becomes a little bit of a problem there. And that's kind of where the, the isometric mid-thigh pull comes into place. Um, and again, the, the, the guys and myself will, will use, um, we'll use force plates to assess this, but we'll set them up with an isometric mid-thigh pull. And, and players love that because ultimately it's um, pretty idiot proof. Um, there's there's very little skill involved in, in generating maximal force in an isometric position. Um, whereas ultimately a, a repetition maximum step test is a combination of skill, i.e. do you know how to lift and capacity, i.e. what's your raw capability of lifting that weight. So with an ISO pull, you basically set them up, um, you know, bars like in sort of the mid-thigh position, and you just pull as hard as fast as you can. Now, if a golfer is a bit tired, well, they can just let go of the bar. It's not going to drop down. They feel super safe. Whereas if they get to the bottom position of a squat, they're like, well, like, can someone jump in and help me? Or, you know, do I dump this off the back? And they feel, they feel much less safe. Um, and I think the other thing as well, which I don't think is something that, I'm mass massively bothered about, but the golfers quite like it. Is it? It looks a little bit golfy in terms of their setup position. So as they're set up to lift, it's kind of a bit like they're at their address position for golf. So um, that sort of buy-in there is quite nice. Um, it's not necessarily like something that I would massively like bang on about, but it does help a little bit. Um, and there is some evidence the data is a little bit mixed so some of my earlier work showed that it, it was a 
it was a significant predictor. Uh, sorry, it did significantly relate to club head speed. I've had some more recent work that um, that shows it's not as strong as as something like impulse um, or counter movement jump impulse. Um, but it is still a really valuable way of kind of getting an understanding as to where someone is, where someone's at from a maximum strength point of view. Um, and we also know there's other reasons in and around like the importance of being strong and uh, to, to try and reduce the risk of injury as well, or, or a golfer being um, almost robust enough to come, uh, cope with swinging the club faster. And the, the isometric mid-thigh pull correlates quite well with, with back squat, correct? Yeah, so there there was some work Mike by Mike and Mike McGeegan that showed that it, it was a, an incredibly strong strong relationship. Um, I did see a, a, quite a recent publication that did question the the links between dynamic movements, um, but I still would say that th- there is a lot of valuable in, value in looking at this in golf, like over, let's like, say, doing a repetition maximum test. Um, the other thing as well is that. Yeah, that research looked at quite dynamic movements. But if we think about if we think about the golfer swinging the club, uh, and I sort of say this loosely, within the swing, they are, the golfer is sort of in a bit of a quasi-isometric position, so mm-hmm. they don't massively drop down into like a like a, a like a fully flexed position through their ankles, knees, and hips, um, and they don't fully sort of stand up. They actually do sort of their center of mass doesn't move massively up and down. So they are sort of in a bit of a quasi-isometric position throughout the actual swing. Yes, you do get some players that will stand up, stand up and, and, and move down a little bit, but I do think you can rationalise it from that point of view as well. Now, not everybody's going to have, obviously, access to those force plates, and we know that there's a good correlation between the isometric mid-thigh pull peak force and back squat strength. So what should what would be considered a, a good amount of relative strength for say the back squat and, and a deadlift what should golfers be aiming for um so like for for a deadlift um you know, we, we've got some values that we we've um we've presented on gpm but we you know for like a, a good amount for a female we're sort of saying 1.5 to 1.75 um for a female at one point oh, sorry for a male 1.75 to 2.25 in terms of relative to body mass um for a back squat, we'd be saying uh, something like 1.2 to 1.6 for a female, whereas a male, 1.5 to, to 2 is roughly where we'd probably you'd look at. What about asymmetries? So there's been a lot of research um, with athletes across a wide range of sports looking at how asymmetries impact not just performance, but but injury risk. And you know, golf's an asymmetrical sport, so we should probably expect golfers, at least elite golfers, to have some asymmetries. What what does your research tell us about asymmetries in golf? Yeah, so um, I think you've already had Mr. Asymmetry and Chris Bishop on here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, probably the wrong person to ask this because he'd probably give a much thorough answer than me. Um, but from um, from the work that I looked at with asymmetries, um it, it doesn't relate to club head speed um at all um so there, there's there's no sort of link there now i suppose if i just rewind and think well actually we're often told asymmetry is a bad thing you know it's really linked to injury risk but you know let's say if is asymmetry good for golf or not you know it, it's an as- asymmetrical sport so 
do we want a golfer to be asymmetrical? So let's say if we found them to be asymmetrical, well, would making them more symmetrical be good for the golfer or would it make them worse? Like it's it sort of, it'd be quite easy to go, well, let's make them really symmetrical because we know, we know, we know we've been told that um, asymmetry is a bad thing. Well, yeah, I don't subscribe to that asymmetry being a bad thing, um, but we're often told that it is now. I think you could argue that well, actually, if we made them, if we made them more symmetrical, whatever that might look, like, whatever that might look like, could it arguably make them worse? Um, and I don't know. It's probably a bit more of a philosophical question just to, to get into really. But I think we probably need to be quite careful about looking at a golfer and going they're asymmetrical, whether that's from a ground reaction force perspective um whether that's from just looking at someone visually and how they stand um i think there's probably too much time um placed on golf in terms of let's say trying to make make people more symmetrical when actually we probably don't really understand a how it affects movement and, and b how it links to to injury yeah and and i guess how would we measure that unfortunately a lot of the ways that people measure asymmetry now is with their eyeball right and and that's not a very turns out not a very good way to measure and i've talked about this with with both the fms and the tpi movement screen and 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 some of the the flaws with it what are, what's your thoughts on like on screening golfers should we be doing that well screening is like like it's it's a really broad topic initially so if we consider it generally, we've got, um, let's say, firstly, we've got, um, we could call it a, um, a, a branded movement screen, let's say um, FMS or you know TPI screen. So that's kind of one version. We've got sort of, let's say, orthopedic assessments, which um, is another form of screening that people may use with their players. Um, we've also got um, just observing movement generally, like we like you say, like, we all um, look at people, how they move, and, and that might be um, in context, so on the golf course, but it might be out of context, like how they move in the gym. So we're actually observing them and screening them on how they, they, they walk and they move and they you know, how they perform on the course and within the gym. And then finally, probably what I would argue is the most important screening is, or let's say, health screens. So you know, skin, skin cancer screening, or let's say someone going, having an echocardiogram or an ECG and and actually for me that's the most important screen from screening so we I, what I would say is we're trying to make something like you know can someone overhead squat properly or can someone separate their their pelvis from their thorax um we're tr making that sound super like far more important than it than it actually is and I think what it comes down to again is like having a really robust rationale for why we why we do it and i suppose with my my i'm thinking about screening is um i kind of want to start this by um talking about validity and reliability and whenever we assess when we whenever we use anything to capture information we need to understand whether it's valid or reliable so i use force plates okay and they're super valid uh, and they're reliable. Okay. So what I mean by that is, is validity is, is something 
measuring measuring what we think it's measuring. So for instance, if I had a set of scales to measure height, and those listeners are probably thinking that's ridiculous. Okay. Um, yeah, I did say that, set of scales to measure height. Um, but it's not very valid because I mean, I, I've got a set of scales, but scales don't measure height. But they might be really reliable because if I stand on them again and again and again, you know, it might say 1.7 meters, 1.7 meters, 1.7 meters. But it's not valid, so you know, we we shouldn't be using it for that, for that, for that test. Now, reliability is: are those tests really repeatable? So, if I use a golf launch monitor example, if if I got a golf robot to swing at 100 miles an hour, well, if if um, and we've got a launch monitor next to it. If the first recording comes back 103 miles an hour, and then the next one's 82, and then the one after that's 115, well, then we we don't know. We can't. Like it, we start to become unsure about what the next value will be. If it was 101, 102, 101, then if we swung the club again, we're we're going to be reasonably confident that it's going to be around that value. And with reliability, I always say that there's pretty much a linear relationship between reliability and confidence. And the more unreliable a test is, the more that erodes our our confidence in the results we're going to get. Now, I've heard screening, um, it's often sold um, really well. And we think, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Oh, whoop, yeah, great. Awesome. That, That sounds brilliant. But we don't really scratch below the surface. So People will say, oh, screening is a roadmap which guides your intervention. You think, oh, yeah, amazing. That's so true. That's awesome. But um, it's, you know, they'll say, oh, it, it really helps us to understand if it's a technical issue or is it, if, it's a, if, it's a, if it's a physical issue. Okay. And again, that sort of sounds like a lot of sense. But I would describe that roadmap as a roadmap that you're probably holding upside down because it's not overly valid. And every time you open that roadmap, you're probably on a different page because screening isn't overly reliable. Um, and golf movement screens um, or golf, golf, you know, say these golf specific screens are used to try and predict um, movement or understand why a golfer moves a particular way. Um, and also to try and predict the risk of injury. And what we know is they don't predict movement at all because movement is a lot more complicated than can I stand up? If I can't stand on one leg, then um, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And it doesn't predict, it doesn't predict movement. So I, I'll give you, I suppose if I give you some examples of, of um, screens that have been like really popular and just try and like almost scratch below the surface on why they're why they're like an issue so like if we look at the overhead squat that's a real flagship screen and there is information presented out there that says if you cannot overhead squat you basically will early extend and or um, um, lose your posture um but what's important to recognize is an overhead squat is flipping hard to do um especially if you look at a lot of older you know older golfers but there is research showing that 91 percent of people will fail the criteria you need for uh, an overhead squat uh, and even tpi say that over 70 70 70 percent of people will fail an overhead squat so what you've got is you've got something that's flipping hard to do and then you're comparing it to swing mechanics 
which are quite common, i.e. loss of posture and early extension. So what you're finding is you're finding two things that relate, okay? Um, and I think people look at that and go, oh, these two really strongly correlate. But like, just because something correlates doesn't mean that there is a mechanistic link between the two, okay? So um, ultimately, our, our absolute test will be if we improve the overhead squat, then yeah, that should you know change our swing mechanics, and you know people should stop losing posture, or they, they you know they're not going to really extend. Um, and there is evidence to show that if you improve the overhead squat following an eight-week intervention, there is no change in swing kinematics. So it's not valid. Okay, for starters, it, it's not a valid predictor of why someone moves a particular way, and they've made that age-old error of uh, inferring. Uh, correlation is causative but if we look at the reliability of that as well um evidence from Vidal you know highlighted that if you if you got someone to form an overhead squat and then you just gave them some verbal cues you can significantly improve the overhead squat and again Frost showed that when people have an understanding of grading scores um, they perform better at that test so what I'm saying here is if we go back to that saying of it helps you to understand um, whether the, whether what's going on in the swing is a technical issue or a physical issue. But don't forget that the, the task you're performing is determined on physical capabilities and skill. So you can't say with confidence that it is a physical issue that is affecting those movements and those movements within the swing because the overhead squat is a skill. It's a balance task. A lot of people can't do it because they just don't know how to squat properly. So it's it's a real issue when um, we see people failing an overhead squat and then um, they are told that the reason they move up and down in their swing is because of uh, the issues within the overhead squat. And that's just spend loads of time improving the overhead squat. Um, and we just don't like the depth we need to squat. So if you imagine... If you imagine performing an overhead squat and someone gets to their thighs get to um, parallel, which which isn't which isn't enough to pass the test, but their shins are in line with their their their, their spine and the the club is above their footfall, um, well they haven't passed the test because they just haven't got below parallel. Um, so if we improve that, like and just get them to drop a degree lower, like we can't surely we can't expect that that to manifest changes in the swing, like. I would look at that and go, yeah, great. There's no issue with that at all. Like, I'm happy. I'm happy for you to be loaded in the gym. Okay, and that's not really an issue. Um, so, I think I think I have like big concerns that we're drawing we're drawing conclusions based on something that um, isn't going to like isn't a valid predictor of the swing. Um, but also, how does our how does our confirmation bias affect this? So we're told that there's a mechanistic link so imagine if you worked with a golfer and you um they, they came in to see you for a physical assessment and they show you a video of them um hitting a um hitting a shot now they move down ever so slightly okay so that their 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 height in their swing drops ever so slightly or their um their ankle knee and hip so like there, there's a slight movement away from their original setup angles now it's not overloads; it's tiny. Okay. Now imagine that they fail an overhead squat. Your 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 bias 
in your belief is probably going to go, ah, oh, yeah, you know, you're you're early, you're you're early extending or you're losing posture there. But rewind the clock and imagine they passed that test. You would then probably go, oh yeah, you're not actually, you're not actually losing posture, you're not actually early extending there. So what we have is we try and fit our beliefs or we try and fit these sort of findings to fit in this sort of like bias that we have. Um, and again, that's going to affect our outcomes and 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 how we believe these these link. Yeah, it comes back to having to rely too much on the eye. And obviously yeah. the eye is extremely important. We use it every day if you're working with athletes and you watch the movie, watch them work out, you're always assessing how they look and how they're moving. Uh, like strength and conditioning professionals should be able to trust their eye to a certain degree, right? Because they see enough athletes move um, and they should know from a day-to-day -day basis, even like if I'm working with somebody on a fairly regular basis, I can tell in their warm-up whether or not, and the warm-up is designed, like it's done a daily warm-up to not just warm them up, but to actually watch them move to see where they're at and, and what, how hard they can be pushed today or whether we need to back off. So the eyes are really important. However, we can't just be solely relying on our eyes, especially if we're working with athletes, right? If we're working with athletes, we need to be collecting actual data. And the force plates are obviously the gold standard for that, but they're very expensive. They're not going to be in everybody's budget, but we still have some really good apps we can use. And in fact, in the latest update of the My Jump Lab app, we can now capture jump impulse, right? So now we have the ability to capture impulse with our phone. So it's, it's really accessible. It's really easy to use and it's very affordable. And, you know, so everybody should be doing it. But unfortunately, I think that there's far too many coaches out there that still think that they don't need technology and, you know, they feel that they can assess everything perfectly with their eyes. Yeah. Well, well, it's funny you say that because like, yeah, like, and it's the thing that we've got we can we can gather so much information from and they're super important because yeah like how we watch them move how you know, how they seem when we interact with them it, it can tell us a really important message but there are certain aspects where um we do also have to be really careful with some of the things that we're we're looking at so you know like when we when we consider um like pelvis positioning um we we would use our eyes to try and understand where a golfer is standing um, when they hit a shot. And hey, like, you know, I do this when I, you know, when I'm when I'm working with golfers, if I'm if I'm walking with them on the course, if I'm working with them at the range, I will use my eyes to like um, look at the move, um, and I'll look at things like their pelvis position. But again, like the pelvis, the, the pelvic tilt screen is used really commonly to try and understand why a golfer will move a particular way okay you know if, if, if apparently if someone's got um anterior tilt their spine's more likely to you know be pointed towards the target at the top of the backswing and they might not be able to rotate a certain way so on and so forth if it's in posterior tilt but um the evidence shows again that even really skilled clinicians are not able to reliably predict um the tilt of the pelvis when looking at a golfer down the line so Again, this comes back to the validity and reliability issues that let's say we're we're working with uh, someone, uh, a golfer, and we've taken them through a screen and they, um, you know, we, we're saying, oh, you know, that you've got a um, anterior pelvic tilt. 
um, which um, we've got um, unreliably because you know, we're not able to do it. We're not able to do it. Well, we think we think we think it's you know we think we're pretty good at. It. We think we're pretty skilled. We've done it a long while. And then we decide, right, I want you to do these 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 different exercises to try and get you into a, a neutral tilt because it's it's super important to reduce your risk of injury and 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 you know stop you swinging the club a particular way because standing uh, address uh, in a static position uh, forces you to swing the club a particular way. Okay, that's not the case, but because it's unreliable, they come back after eight weeks and we go, hey, look, you know your your pelvis has changed, but that but that's. Because it's not reliable, it that could be because a we're not able to judge it very well as skilled clinic clinicians, or just there's natural variability when the golfer comes back to um, to see you because they're just standing slightly differently. So we just don't know what that is. But even with three um, D systems, so three D kinematic systems. So there was a paper um, published by Evans in 2012. And they had some really um, good, like golf biomech people on this paper, and they looked at the they looked at the segments, they looked at thoracic spine, like how it moved in like all different planes. Same with the pelvis. But the one thing that three D systems that it really struggled with as paper, it just could not reliably predict the tilt of the pelvis in an anterior neutral posterior position. Okay, so what we're finding here is that we can't predict reliably or we can't reliably assess where the pelvis is with our eyes and even 3d isn't as good um even three even 3d isn't reliable either so we're getting information there that we just can't be that confident with um and when we talk about um the pelvis and how it links to the swing i just again i just don't subscribe to that because Again, there's no real evidence to support that, but it, it just depends. Like there's a lot of moving parts between, let's say, the pelvis and the arms. Okay, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of different segments that could cause a golfer to move a particular way. Um, so it's not going to cause a golfer to move in a certain way because there's just a lot that it depends on. But I often find when one of the last frontiers when people argue about um let's say um screens or the pelvis i'll say yeah but but you don't want you don't want anterior tilt because you'll get low back pain again this this just um isn't the case so paper quite recently um assessed um pelvic tilt and low back pain and the authors stated and they quoted that the links between pelvic tilt and low back pain are not clin clinically meaningful so you can assess it and there might be an anterior tilt, but that tilt is not meaningful. Um, it's not predictive in terms of people having low back pain. Um, and if we look at a different industry, so there was research comparing um, coal miners to surface level workers and the amount of like lumbar lordosis they had and the, the sort of the prevalence of low back pain. And um, the coal miners had uh, significantly greater low back pain. 78% of them had low back pain when compared, when compared to surface workers who had 32%. Um, but when you compared lumbar lordosis, which is very strongly linked to pelvic tilt, anterior pelvic tilt, there was absolutely no difference between the two. So again, what we're seeing here is perhaps it's actually the task itself. So coal miners are probably going to be it's very labor intensive um, perhaps that's going to be more causative of our low back pain 
Um, and what would be really good was if there'd be a publication in golf like this. And and luckily there is. Okay, so <laughs> paper in 2019, they looked at the prevalence of low back pain in 165 golfers, and they assessed um, you know those with low back pain. Okay, what what pelvis position do they have? And they found that there was no significant difference between back pain and different tilts so like neutral tilt 43% had low back pain anterior pelvic tilt 48% had low back pain posterior pelvic tilt 53% had um, low back pain so there was no significant difference between the group so again like the coal miners perhaps it's just simply the fact that golf in itself is um, like playing golf is a causative or a risk factor of getting low back pain because we know that the amount of force, the amount of compression force in the spine when you hit a six iron is seven 7,000 newtons. So when you hit one shot with your six iron, you get 7,000 newtons of, of compressive force. So for those that don't know what that sort of is, imagine pushing your fists together, okay? And 7,000 newtons is the equivalent of 700 kilograms. So imagine 700 kilograms of force pushing your fists together okay so that's like probably the main reason or it's probably unfair to say the main reason one of the reasons why golfers suffer with low back pain but again it's not it's not just that injuries can happen for a lot of different reasons okay there was there's links between uh reduced sleep or low levels of reduced sleep being linked to um injury risk okay poor nutrition okay poor physical activity uh, stress levels so there's a lot of links between um between pain okay? and i think just to be very arbitrary or sorry binary or redu sorry redu reductionist in going okay it's just how the pelvis is tilted is just it's just far too low level okay? and i think we need to consider it a bit more broadly and holistically you touched on predictive movements in the in the swing can you go into a little bit more detail as why why they don't predict very well yeah so um what i do with this is like i come back to um like Newell's like like dynamical systems theory uh, and that's like a really kind of really quite a complicated name but but basically movements occur because of let's say three things so that's the organism i.e the golfer and so, for instance, if we imagine if, if someone has got low back pain, they might be guarding their swing a little bit or they might move particularly differently. Um, if if someone is taller, they might have a certain swing plane, so on and so forth. Um, the task. OK, so we've got the organism or the golfer, the task. So how someone moves when they hit a, a putt is very different to when they're hitting a, a, a drive. Or if you think, let's say, a driver, if someone's hitting a stock, stock shot or someone that was absolutely bombing the ball. OK, so with the. With a with a bomb, you know, a golfer might really sort of rotate. The club might go uh, much further past that um, horizontal position at the top of the backswing. But also the environment. You know, recently we had the the Ryder Cup, and you hear a lot of players say that they're very nervous when they're when they're on that first tee compared to let's say if they were just playing a practice round uh, at their home course. Um, so we move based on three things: so the organism, either golfer, the task and the environment um and ultimately like we those three combine and they will, they will determine an outcome so i suppose a lot of screens aren't then they're, they're just not very that they're described as 
being golf specific but ironically they really lack specificity so for instance if we use the single leg balance single leg balance is a static task it's performed on one leg with your eyes closed you have to stand on one leg for 25 seconds to pass it and you use your ground reaction forces to stay still whereas the golf swing is a dynamic task okay it's not static you're on two legs your eyes are open the swing lasts roughly one second and you use ground reaction forces so your vertical anterior posterior medial to lateral to move you dynamically so what we're doing there is we're we're trying to compare two things that are completely different so we're using the single leg balance to try and predict um well it's suggested that this can cause things like sway and slide but we're using something that is just simply not a again validity it's not a valid measure of performance but it's also again it's not that reliable um so some work at the, the uni a university that the university that i did my phd at they've got some work coming out there the eyes closed balance task is the least reliable balance task that they've assessed so again like and you can just try this out like you can just see it for yourself try and balance on one leg with your eyes closed you know your knee up um like horizontal and time yourself and you might fall over after about five seconds and then you do it again and you might you know, it might last 15 seconds but there's a 10 second difference there so if you do it again are you going to become better and better and better um so it's just not a reliable measure of performance so within that test it's not valid because um the evidence shows that it doesn't predict movements in the swing but again it's just not reliable as well so as i say this golf specific test lacks any sort of form of specificity um and that sort of is probably where like, I, I come from with this this screening point of view like yeah you know like if we want to call it screens, I use screens, you know, I will look at, I will look at a thoracic rotation if I think it's an issue. Okay. I will look at sort of um, hip assessments, but I'm not going to look, I'm not going to assess a golfer and let's say with a thoracic rotation test and think, you know, because they, because they can't do a thoracic rotation test, um, this is going to really affect their swing. Um, and again, there is evidence, there is evidence showing a significant relationship between a seated thoracic rotation test and the amount of spinal rotation in the golf swing. But actually, the relationship wasn't that strong. Even though it was statistically significant, it wasn't very strong at all. Okay, there were a lot of other things that are stronger. And actually, the seated thoracic rotation had a stronger relationship with the amount of side bend. You think, well, that doesn't make sense. That's really confusing. But what I think a lot of people do is they go, well, you can't do a seated thoracic rotation test. So, you know, you'll have a short backswing and you won't hit the ball very far. But again, it, that isn't necessarily the case because you could have a long backswing with actually zero thoracic rotation because you could lift your lead foot off the floor, which can help your pelvis to rotate round. You can lift your arms. You can really cock your wrists. You can produce a lot of ground reaction forces in the downswing. Um, you can um, release your wrists at a really, um, really late in your swing. Um, so actually it doesn't link because... Um, a golfer can adapt and I'm using the word adapt rather than compensate again like it's a lot of negative language around screens okay it's not 
it's not a compensation it's an adaptation one is one is used to make it sound make screening sound more important than they are okay but i would look at it as an as an adaptation and a lot of golfers do that a lot of golfers will swing a club um the best golfers will present um very very different swings between each other but also within themselves as well there's a lot of variability within themselves when they swing clubs so if you've got a, like a, a DP World Tour player to hit 10 shots, those those shots would be would be different, okay, because they present a lot of variability. So then how would you recommend, like if, if say, the professionals listening, if they have a golfer that comes to them kind of distraught because they failed the TPI screen, they can't do the overhead squat, how would you recommend that professional communicate to that golfer? Yeah. It's it's quite a challenging one. It's a it's it's um it can be quite a delicate situation. I sort of liken it to a bit, you know, a bit when you have some work done on your house, and if you get one tradesman sort of really slamming the other one, um, I don't think that looks very good to the golfer in in front of uh, in front of you. I I think it can create a lot of anxiety uh, because they sort of feel a little bit unsure about um who's right and who's wrong and and yeah are they thinking oh this person's just trying to take my business over that person so um i think you have to be really careful with it now some of the things that you can do is you can perhaps try and um engage with that coach and try and get an understanding as to where they're coming from because sometimes you know if you work with young people maybe maybe it's a little bit of miscommunication and you just don't want you want to make sure that actually you're getting the correct information but you can start to like pick the um, practitioner's brain as to you know where they're coming from um because you actually might be on the same i've had this before where you're actually on the you're actually on the same wavelength and they've, they've not said that um but i think the best people i know um they can um, it, it can be a little bit attritional but when you start asking really good questions, um, people can start to realise that um, it just all falls apart. So um, you can you can ask the practitioner and say, okay, well, you know, why um, why do you think there is a link between the two? And if you've got a good understanding, like about you know, why it doesn't, you can ask them good questions to get to get them to realise that actually it just can't link. Um, but you can say to the golfer, like if you're working with them. Um, you could say, well, you know, um, well, actually, I think let's say let's say it's a pretty good, pretty good overhead score, and you think I'm really comfortable with this. I, I can work. I'm so happy like loading them when it's you know, in a goblet squat or whatever. I'm really comfortable loading them. You could just spin as a positive and go, well, actually, I'm really comfortable with you doing X, Y, and Z. So if you're really if you think they're really comfortable in 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 doing certain um, certain movements under a load, then yeah, just try and put a positive on it. And what you might find is that. If you're po quite positive um, and you feel like you're helping or you that's he it's helping them and it's going to benefit them, then um, then they might they might be more inclined to work with you because I've seen this a lot with players that I've worked with where they've said oh, I I can't I can't lift X Y and Z because I I've been told I've got um, um, a limited hip rotation so you know I had a player that I worked with that just said. Oh, you know, like, um, yeah, I did, I did this TPI screen, and um, I just can't. And they've said, well, I've got a hip issue. Um, so I was at the range with them, and I said, right, just hit a few shots, and 
I sort of look for things like with their lead hip, does their lead does their lead foot spin out quite a lot? Um, and then I did sort of like a quick hip, quick hip rotation test, and I was like, this is not an issue at all. Um, and I just said to them, I I think this is okay. Like I'm pretty comfortable with this, and absolutely fine. And then we got them lifting um, certain weights, and they lifted well, and they were really comfortable, um, and they enjoyed that. Um, but I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of scaremongering, and I think selling sickness, selling sickness, and creating dependency on these screens. So, what I tend to find, and um, I I know someone that I worked with, um, and I won't say who, but we got them to do a um, sort of a TPI screening assessment with the students, and this was quite a high profile person. And I had a chat with them afterwards. I said, "Oh, how did that go?" And they, he just said. That was absolutely awful. I said, okay, why? He said, I feel like um, I need to give up golf because I just failed like 10 of these, 10 of these screens, and I just felt like I couldn't move. And, and this person was like a good golfer. And they've gone away thinking, I'm an absolute wreck. Um, I shouldn't play golf. This is really bad for me. And um, but then what it does is it creates that dependency. So it's sold sickness because they think gosh, I'm absolutely awful at this, creates a really negative connotation, might be feeling quite anxious. Um, but then what it does is like, well, if I need to, if I want to improve, I need to come back and see this person. So you tend to do some really low level exercises. So it's like these little corrective exercises. So like, oh, you can't pelvic tilt. So just stand and just tilt your pelvis backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards or um like just really low grade interventions that don't actually create any overload. You don't get any adaptation, but then like, let's say like you, you failed your pelvic tilt because part of a pelvic tilt test is skill, not capacity. So <laughs> you've been practicing it. You've got better at your pelvic tilt. You come back, you pass that and then you fail your next, you've, you've like, you've you start passing some tests, but then you fail a, a whole load of different tests that you originally passed. So then it's like, right, okay, well done. You need to go and do that. And then it's just a circle of round and round again. And I like, I even saw a publication, I even saw a publication where they sort of like looked at this and they were like, you know, after like two years, you've still got these issues. And I'm like, this is, this is crackers. This is like with really like a really high level player. And they've spent like a year, two years working on this and they've got absolutely no improvement. And I just can't get my head around it it's it's it just creates so much dependency um so much fear and i just i think a lot of people use it to 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 create that to their advantage and i think that's not very fair for the player and even oftentimes if they do improve whatever it is they're working on with the screen it has no carryover to their to their swing anyway and so they've just wasted you know all of this time all of this effort that could have gone into recovery could have gone into you know, practice and strength training, something else. And yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. It is a delicate situation sometimes to um, communicate that to the person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I've heard people say, oh, because you can't externally rotate your right shoulder, you'll hit a slice. What? Like, why would you hit a slice? That Like your a slice is, is directly dependent on where the club face and swing path are. So if it's not like, if it's not meeting that criteria, like, your ball might not go left to right in the in the air. It might literally start left and go further left. Like, and and we sort of take this information and like it's kind of like 
uh, like tarot cards where we'll sort of try and start like we'll ultimately we'll like we'll try and predict what happens but it's so basic it's like going to someone oh you've loved someone once you're like yeah I have I, I, I have loved someone and oh I, I bet you've I bet you've had someone in you've had some sadness in your life someone's passed away oh yeah I have and it's like it's just so basic that like but it's kind of like it makes people believe that it is it is really predictive when it's just sometimes it's just complete potluck yeah. um so yeah so let's let's finish here with uh, talking a little bit about the Golf Performance Network. As the listeners know, um, I'm a huge advocate of what you guys are doing. I think it's had such a, a positive impact on my confidence, especially my confidence to be able to know that I'm positively impacting my golfers and my athletes' uh, performance. Tell us about how it all came together and and where people can go to join. Yeah, so I, I suppose how it was was born was um, we, we, we so Dan, Simon, and I. Um, we just had so many people saying, "How do I, how do I, become more knowledgeable about working with golfers?" And we were basically just saying, "Just don't do this." Um, and, and it was just such a like it's just not a great answer so it was like okay just don't do anything um so we, we got to the point where we had so many people asking us about trying to get better or improve our understanding that we just said we we need to try and put pull something together so that's kind of when when gpm was born um and then what we what we what we do is we we have like different sort of options really so we've got um We've got your, your your access to the network where people pay to to be on the network and we'll put sort of co content on there so whether that is um articles that some of us will write um we will get guest speakers in we get like a lot of like we're really fortunate and then we've got a good network of absolute experts you know ranging in loads of different things whether that's nutrition whether that's physiotherapists psychologists strength conditioning coaches um, we try and look at this from a, like a really a broad perspective um, we get um, we get golf coaches in too and we just we get them to talk about certain topics that they are um, super knowledgeable in um, so we've got different forms of content there where it's like these live talks or um, or blog posts um, but then what we it, it gives it's really nice for people because they have a bit of a taste of some of the stuff that we talk about and it opens probably some of their eyes to some of the some of our uh, you know philosophical thinking and our beliefs um but we also have like um our, our course i've got a physical preparation course which i know you've, you've you've completed um but um that gives people an opportunity if they want to become gpn certified that they can actually take part and do this six-week course which you managed to do in in six days somehow um, um but yeah it gives them an opportunity to actually take it one step further and and become become certified and at the moment we've got other ideas because the feedback has been incredibly strong um when um it, it's been incredibly strong from the people that have taken this course i think when you pull these things together you're always a little bit conscious about will you know, we like this because ultimately we've we've written it, but we're other people. But we're really fortunate that everyone that has done it has come back and said that was really good. Um, and it's just kind of fueled us a little bit more to to put another courses in different areas. So we're just sort of working on that at the moment. Yeah, and and like I I can't 
recommend it highly enough. The physical preparation course, it teaches you the advanced assessment and, and program design principles that they use on the DP world tour. And um, like I said, it will give you the confidence that, you know, you're having a positive impact on your athlete's performance. Jack, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I know the listeners got a ton of information from you. So thank you again so much. Thanks very much, Thomas. I really appreciate you, you having me. And um, yeah, I'm sure I'll catch you soon.